Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Martin Pierce, and welcome to this latest Policy Forum pod. Australia has recently released its new defence white paper. The white paper plots an ambitious and expensive military future for the country, planning a spend of nearly $200 billion over the next five years, together with a larger military force. Some of the numbers in the white paper are headline-grabbing and eye-watering. $30 billion on new frigates, $50 billion for 12 new submarines. The plan hasn't been met with universal acclaim, though. Some commentators have said that it sets Australia on the wrong course, giving the country capabilities it won't need, while neglecting others it will. This week, an event at the ANU Coral Bell School brought together some of the country's leading strategic and defence studies thinkers to run the rule over the white paper. I caught up with a couple of them ahead of the event, Associate Professor Stefan Fruling and Professor Hugh White. I started by asking Stefan how the white paper stacked up as a policy document. Was it good? Bad, ugly, or just plain wrong? Well, I think I think they always have strengths and weaknesses. These documents, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, there's, I think, a lot of, to like about it in terms of the capability priorities. I think it strengthens Australia's ability for maritime conflict in its inner region. I think there is. It's probably less coherent in the way that it necessarily derives this from stri- from explicit strategy. Um, but I think if you take a step back and follow the money, the priorities, I think, are lying in the right, right areas. Um, the other point I think that is important to keep in mind with this white paper is that it's part of a broader process to, if you like, almost re-baseline defense as a whole organization. Um, the white paper really needs to be seen in the context of the First Principles Review, which completely revamped the organization. So it's almost like the First Principles Review tries to put defense into a position of actually being able to spend money coherently and act strategically, and the white paper is the program that it's now supposed to implement. So it's we're still at the early stages of a, of a, of a process, but I think defense is learning to walk before it can run, and it needs to learn to walk before it can run, but I think it's walking in the right direction, if I may put it this way. Uh, and what about you, Hugh? Would, would you agree with that take? Well, I, I'd agree with some of it. I think, you know, when you look at a, a white paper, what's its principal function? It is to set uh, priorities for developing uh, defence capabilities and how much money we're going to spend. To do that, it's got to look decades into the future. Uh, and it's going to make those decisions on the basis of some judgments about the kind of strategic environment we're living in and what that means for the sorts of conflict we might find ourselves dragged into. And so for me, the big question is, well, what are the basic judgments that the White Paper makes about the kind of strategic environment we're going to be operating in over the next, say, 30 years? And how well does it fit our force structure and our spending priorities to 
those judgments. Well, it seems to me right at the heart of of the new white paper, the 2016 white paper, is a judgment that our strategic circumstances are not going to change very much. Now, it says that, you know, we're in an era of unprecedented uncertainty and uh, so on, but if you actually look at the hard judgments that it makes, as best one can extract them from the pros, it it does seem to me to presuppose that that, uh, the United States is going to remain the dominant power in Asia. So it's a, it's a business as usual. It's a business as usual. And from that, on that basis, it judges that our, the sorts of forces we've been developing in previous decades are going to continue to be the right ones in the future and that what we need to do is to incrementally develop those forces along the same basic line. Now, where I agree with Stefan is that there are some good, sensible steps in the document to continue that incremental development. The question is, are we incrementally developing a force structure which is really relevant to very different strategic circumstances we might face? Now, you're going to have a big debate about what, what, what those new circumstances what might mean, what kind of force structure we should have, but I guess my deepest criticism of the white paper is that I don't think that it even addresses that question. It simply presupposes that an incremental linear development of the capabilities we've had in the past will do for us in future as well as it has done for us in the past. And... If you're sure the future's going to be like the past, that's a good judgment. If you're less confident of that, and I am, then that looks like uh, a bit uh, bit too optimistic. So what sort of threats is it actually preparing, preparing us for? Well, I think, um, you know, they're right at the heart of the judgments in the new white paper and indeed right at the heart of judgments that Australia has made as a basis for our forced posture since the 1970s is that because the US remains the dominant power in Asia, there's a very low ceiling on the kinds of conflicts we have to fight independently. The United States will always be there for us. And there's a, and there's a relatively low ceiling on what we'd actually have to do to support the United States as well. And the less sure you are that the US is going to be there for us, And the less sure you are that if the US is there for us, it's going to be uncontested or rather than face some really serious adversary, then uh, the less confident you are that those ceilings still apply. And it does seem to me that we can't be at all sure of either of those things. If the US is going to stay engaged in Asia and if we're going to remain its its ally, then I think the chances of it facing very serious rivalry, particularly from China, are quite high. And I think, more, and, and that has big implications for the sort of support that we we need to provide the United States. And more importantly, still, I would say, I think the chances of the United States not remaining strongly engaged in Asia, not this year or next year, but thirty years from now, is quite high. I don't think for a moment we can presume that as it confronts a strategic rival in in Asia as formidable as China is today, and will I think continue to be we can't presume the United States just sticks around keeping on doing what it's always done. So if it doesn't, then what we have to be able to do independently is much bigger. So I would say we we need to focus much more on the kinds of forces Australia would need to maximise its independent strategic weight in highly contested Asia, and I don't think the force structure we're building at the moment does that for us at all cost-effectively. Some of the things we're buying we don't need, I think pretty useless, like the big amphibious ships. Some of the things we're buying, like the extra submarines, are a good idea, but we're not buying enough, and we're buying them far too slowly. Um, And some of the things we're doing, like further investment in long-range strategic transport aircraft, the big, you know, uh, giant transport jets, the C-17s, just seem to me to be irrelevant. Stefan, did you want to jump in there? Well, I I I think in principle... 
Hugh and I probably are much closer than it seems on what needs to be done. I think where we differ a bit is reading the white paper. I think with these things are always a bit like scripture, you can find certain things. And I think Hugh missed... I don't think misses, but I think there's a number of things which 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 do actually move into the direction that Hugh Hugh suggesting. Um, I think if the white paper really proposed that the U.S. will remain the strongest power in Asia and that the U.S. will always remain here for us, there we wouldn't actually there would be fairly little reason to buy a number of the things that he's pointed out. Um, I think that there would be then a strong argument, and other people have made that argument that we can actually get out of higher intensities. Um, our capabilities that we can move more, make the army become part of the U.S. Marine Corps, that we can kind of like uh, <coughs> make the navy part of the Seventh Fleet, and those kinds of things that our army can focus on the Middle East. And none of those things are reflected in this white paper. And instead, I think what you see is actually quite significant. If you look at what's different from the past, both the if you like the 2000 white paper and the, the two, that decade, but also from the the last two white papers. I mean, you do have now a bipartisan commitment to doubling the submarine fleet. I think I, I agree with you that we'll probably want these boats much sooner than we wanted, but I think first let's start building them, I guess. Um, there is a, if you look at the, air mar- the maritime patrol aircraft fleet and you take all the different airframes that replace the Orions, you actually have a 50% increase in that part of the force structure, which is very significant whereas other, almost all other parts of the ADF largely stay in, of a similar size. Um, I think you've got new in this white paper uh, land-based anti-ship cruise missiles, which also don't really point to an environment where you necessarily assume the U.S. will remain the dominant naval force in the region. And you've also got a significant investment in um, air defense or well, air surveillance in Australia and also moving our air surveillance capability, not just recapitalizing what we have, but also moving it more into an actually a basis for air defense networks. So there's a new significant money for developing a combined air operations center, for example, which we really don't have in Australia at the moment. We can kind of like see who's coming, but the system isn't really set up yet to do much about that. So that's starting to change and will allow us to plug in more air defense assets, which are also in the in the white paper. So I think that I think the white paper is actually doing a bit more on those things that Hugh would expect it to do. But where I think we I agree is that um, it's probably a more leisurely pace than might seem prudent, but it's probably the pace that is politically feasible and that also the defense organization can both, if you like, intellectually but also organizationally deal with at this stage. I mean, you talked about some of the uh, spending commitments in the in the white paper there, and there are certainly some big ticket items. I mean, one that springs to mind is thirty billion on on new frigates. Have the right choices been made in in the in the white paper? Are we spending enough? Do we need to be spending more? Hugh, well, um, uh, one of the, one of the reasons why I'm, I mean I think I agree with a lot of what Stefan has said, and there are some significant de- developments th- there, and, and some very valuable ones. One of the reasons why I'm a little bit less complimentary about the new white paper in that regard is that some of the biggest and most important of those are decisions to move from six to twelve submarines, and the decisions to buy those. Um, $30 billion worth of future frigates are actually, were actually decisions made in the 2009 white paper. Now, it is uh, significant that, that a new government, this time a coalition government, has recommitted to that, but still the limit, we, we don't want to give them too much credit for big new initiatives that they're really just picking up that were already there in the books from their predecessors. 
uh, and I don't think that's necessarily, although I'm, I think it's good to see the emphasis that places on the capacity for higher-end operations, I don't, in, in, in broad, uh, I don't actually think those and some of the other decisions we're continuing to pursue are necessarily the right ones in terms of capability. And the surface ships, the big uh, future frigate uh, uh, project is one I'd pick on particularly because it's part of what's a very continuing pattern in Australian uh, maritime force development in the last decade or so of putting big investments, uh, unusually, unprecedentedly big investments into very large surface ships. And very large surface ships seem to me to be a very bad investment uh, in view of the way the strategic environment is, in, is evolving over coming decades because very big surface ships are easy to find and pretty easy to sink and cost you a lot of money when you lose them and don't do much for you. Um, so I would say that's one of the key criticisms I'd have of the force structure as it's evolving at the moment. We're over-investing in surface ships and in an attempt to build a capacity to project power by sea ourselves, land and air power by sea ourselves, which I think is very unlikely to succeed against any serious adversary. So I would much rather spend the money on making sure that other people can't project land and and uh, air power against us or against our friends and allies. So I'd spend much more money on submarines, um, which are very, which are lousy at projecting land and, and air power, but very good at stopping other people doing that to you. So I think there's some, I think there's some significant faults in the, um, in in the way in which the the, stru- the you know the force structure is being developed at the moment. Stefan, you were shaking your head whilst yeah. he was talking there. Did you well, want to I jump think in? I think I think I can see where Hugh is coming from, but I guess he assumes that that's the way that the surface fleet would be used. That the idea is that you take the surface ships to go and and take the fight closer to to the adversary, if you like. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily the way that they would be used. Um, and that's certainly not, I think, the highest priority task for which they would be needed if we were in a major conflict. And I think that, to some extent, we're in a situation here where we're really talking about structuring the ADF for a conflict against an Asian great power, and very little work really has been done on really thinking through what the priorities there would be. And I think that where I disagree with you, for example, is that there is an enduring role for surface ships because... We will need to be able to maintain communications with other countries. There is a significant kind of like confusion in the Australian defence debate about sea lines of communication. Uh, there is an implicit assumption often that the aim is to maintain peacetime patterns of shipping, mm-hmm. which is n- this is not about. This is about making sure that we get the supplies into Australia to maintain like civil order at least, and 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 maintain Australia's ability to maintain military operations. And that primarily relates to fuel, things like jet fuel and so on and so forth. And those things have to come from overseas and we'll have to be able to protect those against air attack and as well primarily cruise missile attack against submarine attack. And I guess <coughs> we can have debates about how you do that, but I think the, ta- the need to be able to do that um, um, will remain. So I think that there will always be a role for the surface fleet, and it's not necessarily going to be up north. I think we're west and east of the continent, I think, is probably more likely uh, deployment areas for those fleets. But it's not... I, what I give to you is that there re- these things have probably... We're, we're at the beginning of a long debate, and there's going to be a lot more thinking that will have to go into this, how this would actually go before we can actually kind of um, 
settle those debates once and for all, I think. Yeah, now look, that's exactly right. I mean, they're really important issues, the ones you've raised, Stefan, and I would say that before we start signing cheques and getting hopes in Adelaide uh, up uh, too high about uh, a tsunami of steel-cutting uh, over coming decades, uh, we need to sit down and ask ourselves, well, what is the most cost-effective way of um, defending uh, vital imports? Um, I absolutely agree it's a really central question to us. But just because it's vital doesn't mean it's going to be possible. And I personally think that putting very expensive ships full of very expensive equipment and a large number of people in the way of other people's torpedoes is one way of finding submarines, but it's a little bit like searching for gas leaks with a match. Um, yeah, you'll find it when the torpedo's in the water <laughs> heading towards you. So I, th- I think you're absolutely right that there's a really important set of quite fundamental strategic and operational choices that Australia faces about how it... Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What kind of maritime campaigns it wants to, it wants to be able to undertake in an Asia which is contested amongst highly capable major powers. And that is a new situation for us um, really since the Second World War. And I think we have as a country almost no idea how to do that. That debate hasn't happened. Before the debate has happened, we've decided to spend $30 billion of the taxpayers' hard-earned dollars on ships, which I suspect the study will end up showing is not the most cost-effective way of achieving that result. So I completely agree that that's the right debate to have. I just think we shouldn't be pre- 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 prejudging what the outcome would be. There's also a sort of a, a bit of a deeper point here, and you can sort of see it in the way our discussion has gone, that um, and just to be you know uh, uh, Stefan is absolutely right that there is an element in this white paper which takes further an element which was there in some previous white papers and that is that we are now focusing more on major power conflict and particularly major power conflict in Asia against a major Asian power and we all know who we mean Um, and that is a significant shift but it does seem to me that the strategic, the underlying strategic judgment which informs all of the key positions in our new white paper is that we will win that confrontation and that in doing so we will succeed in pressing China to accept the rules-based global order, that phrase which is woven all through the white paper text, that we will be able, through military means, not necessarily through combat, but through having strong military capabilities, we will, we and our allies and friends, including, of course, the United States primarily, will force China to accept the rules-based global order the way we want it. I think you could say, in fact, it's no exaggeration, I think, to interpret the White Paper as saying that Australia's principal strategic objective is to sustain the rules-based global order as it is at the moment in Asia, and that we will succeed in doing that. That's why we're confident that the US will remain the primary power in Asia. And I think that's likely wrong. I think it's a misjudgment about the balance of power between Australia and its friends and allies led by the United States on the one hand and China on the other. So I think there's a risk that embedded right in the heart of the White Paper is a conception of our broad strategic approach to resisting the, China, the challenge of China 
which is likely to lead to escalating rivalry and may well lead to a conflict which we might not win. How do you feel about that, Stefan? I mean, certainly China is testing the boundaries of the rules-based global order in in a variety of ways. Yeah, I think to some extent we're, again, to different interpretations of scripture here. Um, I think the white paper also does talk about order adjusting to to to, to changing, I guess, power power relativities. Um, and I'm not sure that 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 we're it really needs to be read in a way that we are trying to defend the status quo or kind of like tr- ent- try to enshrine the status quo in the way that um, Hugh suggested. I think, though, that what the white paper has had to say, and I think said quite well, is that. Australia is not opposed to China's rise. Because, I mean, China's rise is a fact of life, and, and, and we've got a lot to, to, to win from that, and that's not a threat for us as such. We're not dealing with Stalinist Russia or Germany in the 1930s here. Um, but what we are concerned about is the way that China behaves. Um, now, obviously, China may have a different view on that, but ultimately we are in a situation where we have to negotiate what the rules-based order will be. But we do want it to be a rules-based order. We do not want it to be a a might-is-right kind of situation. And I think that that's where military force will have its role. Um, Whether we will win that, I think probably will end up with an order that neither the Chinese nor us really, really like. Um, But ultimately, it is a situation where military force has its role, where military force of the kinds of that we are buying has its role. And I think it's also one where we can already see in the Chinese behavior in the East China Sea, for example, where I think, um, if you like, military signaling does lead to changes and does influence behavior both on the side of the U.S. and its allies and on, on, on China. So we are, I think we're entering a phase of, which of an unknown duration, um, but and, and it probably is going to stay with us for quite a long time, where there will be a mix of economic cooperation and strategic competition and military signaling in Asia. And I think that that's the white paper, without saying as much, does seem to acknowledge that. And I do think that it ultimately buys the right kinds of forces to participate in that. Yeah, I think there's a lot There's a lot in that. Certainly, um, you know, we are in, as you say, a kind of a protracted process of negotiation and adjustment of the order to accommodate China's growing power. Um, and I absolutely agree that uh, for Australia and for everyone else, it's going to be very important that we do draw some lines. We do want to draw the line somewhere. We're not going to. We, we don't want to live under China's shadow. And we are going to need to draw some lines, and some of those lines, at least, have to be drawn by an evident capacity to undertake effective military operations. Very key question: though, is where exactly you intend to draw those lines? And although I agree that the white paper does once or twice acknowledge the possibility of adjustment to the order of, of the order to accommodate China, I do think the over the overriding impression given, and if I read it correctly, intended to be given by the document, was that they want to preserve the rules-based order just where it is. That is, in particular, U.S. primacy as a foundation. The language in paragraph two point eight is particularly is particularly pungent here. I really don't think the the, the document acknowledges the possibility of a future order in Asia in which the United States is not the dominant power. And and that, to me, is the central question, because if the United States is not the dominant power, then all sorts of assumptions we've made about the role the United States plays in regional security and the role the United States plays in 
sustaining Australia's security come under question and then broader judgments about the about the kind of um, capabilities we're buying and the kinds of expectations we've got about what we need to do with them need, I think, a bigger and faster revision than I think this white paper offers What can we read into the kind of reactions that the white paper has received? I mean, the US were very positive very quickly about it. There were noises from China that they were reasonably dissatisfied with the stuff in it. What, what does that say to us about what we got right and what we got wrong in it? Well, I guess, first of all, ultimately the white paper needs to determine the broad direction of capability development and have some kind of level of coherent rationale for that. Um, I think that to some extent there is, and again, I don't think I actually disagree with too much that Hugh said, but I think to some extent the white paper isn't, there's only so much we can expect one document, so many questions we can can ask it to address. Um, But... In, in, that, in that light, I think the white paper, um, um, the reception of the white paper was probably as could be hoped for and probably was hoped for. I think if the document was welcomed in Beijing, then there would be a question whether we really got it right. But on the other hand, misgivings, whatever misgivings were, were voiced, were also fairly limited and minor and ultimately focused on the actual point of disagreement, which is, I guess the type of behavior that is acceptable in particular in the South China Sea, which I think is a is useful because I mean that's that's certainly a message that I think the government wanted to send and that's been received in Beijing. We can agree to disagree. But it's I think it's important to make clear that we do disagree on the, on, on, on that point without and nece- unnecessarily antagonizing China by portraying that we were somehow opposed to the rise of China in principle, which is I think sometimes how the two thousand nine white paper was received. I think that the U.S. likes it. It's probably to be expected. I think that there's probably also elements of the white paper that the U.S. might not like prefer as much. But but I mean, certainly, um, um, I mean, it's not it's not it's not a surprising reception. And I think um, um, likewise in Southeast Asia, it's been I think it's been received fairly well, almost as a, like a non-event, which again is not surprising given. Given given the content of the document, so I think that in terms of the international reception, um, there's not actually much surprise or um, um, concern for Australia. I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, obviously, countries like the Philippines and Vietnam are very concerned about the activities that are happening in the South China Sea. Would they have been expecting an Australian uh, defence white paper to? be a bit more explicit about uh, coming to their aid in those in that situation? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I very much agree with Stefan. I think the, the, the response is pretty much what you'd expect. Um, uh, yes, the US likes it. I don't think the Chinese intentionally dislike it, and I'm sure they're not surprised by it. As you said, it's got a tone that I think China would find much easier to accept than some of the language in the 2009 white paper. Um, so I think, you know... To that level, the the, uh, the reception at the great power level, so to speak, has been as you'd expect. And I'd, I think countries in Southeast Asia, particularly the ones most directly engaged in the South China Sea, would have had very limited expectations about what Australia will do and, for that matter, even will say, beyond what we've said in the past about the South China Sea, the, the White Paper repeated what are now pretty well-established lines of Australian policy on the South China Sea specifically. Um, it didn't take those 
any further. The Chinese objected to that in a fairly routine way. I guess countries like the Philippines and Vietnam welcomed it in a fairly routine way, but it was not a very big day in the office for anyone, I don't think. There's a lot of going through the motions. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know. And there's a place in diplomacy for just repeating the well-established lines. That's one of the things that diplomats do. I don't think it adds much to a white paper, but it doesn't do any harm. It's just part of the passing parade. For me, the much more important question is what does that tell us about the deeper issues that we were discussing before about what kind of resolution do we see eventually happening. The really important thing about the South China Sea is to remember that it's not actually about the rocks and reefs. It's about who's the leading power in Asia. And it's, it's, uh, it's important not to get bogged down in the diplomatic minutiae of the issue keep our eye on the really big strategic questions at stake. And finally, I'd like to finish off on a sort of a devil's advocate note, really. There was a defence white paper in 2000. There was another defence white paper in 2009. The sort of funding plans that go into these are years, sometimes decades in advance, and they're always at the whim and mercy of governments and new governments coming in and, and changing their mind. Just how important is it if we actually get it wrong? Well, it depends on what you mean by wrong, because almost by definition you get it wrong in the sense that either you don't use the ADF, in which case you could have probably said we could have saved a lot of money, or you really need them, in which case you would have wanted to spend an awful lot more money on it. So I mean, getting it wrong is almost part and parcel of, 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 of defense policy in, in, in that very crude sense. Um, I think the important thing about white papers is that they set a direction um, and they can't do anything else. I mean, ultimately, every government, no government can really bind its successors. No government can actually bind itself, really, what it will do next year. Um, but it, but that direction is re- setting is really important because ultimately you are, despite the fact that we can't bind future governments, defense does have to make decisions with very long-term implications um, so the question of, I mean, do you start building submarines or do you start developing a submarine? There's no, if you start developing a submarine, there's no hope that you couldn't even build this first one before a decade is out. So that's three elections somewhere down the road. But you can't just wait and not do nothing or and, and do nothing. So, so in that sense, direction setting is really important. I think this white paper is much better at direction setting than the last two. Um, I think in many ways it goes back to the 2001 and I think deliberately went back to the 2001 in tr- some of the the way that's been de- de- developed and the way that's looked at capability development. I think there's some things that probably did, um, 2000 did better, there's probably some things that maybe this one did better, but the important is I think that government did commit to uh, direction, g- did give some certainty to defense as a planning basis. I think government putting in that table with defense expenditure for the next 10 years was a pretty brave step. They didn't have to do that. Um, and 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 ultimately, this will be revisited in coming years and direction will be adjusted, but um, the important thing is to have direction in a way that 2009 provided but then immediately undercut with the budget and 2013 didn't even attempt to do. Yes, I think that's right. I mean... Um 
one of the problems with white papers is that the, the, the time between the decision develop, delivering a result and the decision being made and announced is so long that you forget about it. But, for example, in a 2000 white paper, the decision was made to move to a fifth-generation replacement for the F-18s and the F-111s, which is, and that you can draw a direct line from that to the introduction of the F-35 into service. Uh, in, the, in the 2009 white paper, albeit, as Stefan said, there was a monstrous uh, budgetary hiccup uh, two weeks later, but the decision was made to double the size of the submarine force from 6 to 12, at that, and that, that, that happened. I mean, and, and it looks like we're now going to proceed to a 12-submarine fleet. So these are very big decisions, and although you can never absolutely bind a future government, as a matter of fact, major capability decisions are very rarely overturned once they're made which means you've got to be very careful when you're making them. If you do decide, for example, to recommend to government that they go for a fifth-generation replacement of the F-18s and F-111s, then you're recommending a huge commitment of resources for decades into the future, and everyone will forget when the decision was made or why it was made, but the money is being spent, and you know, the first law of defence policy is every dollar can only be spent once. And so when, we, when you make a bad decision, as governments did, for example, I would say in 2004 with their decision to buy the big amphibious ships that we're now saddled with, that, that, that costs you year after year for decades to come um, with higher costs and lower capability outcomes than you would have got with, with better outcomes. So I, I do, I mean, maybe I'm the last person to ask about this, but I do think white papers are very important. Let's hope the uh, decisions that are in this one are the right one and don't uh, leave us with any costly mistakes. Uh, Stefan, Hugh White, many thanks for your time. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for now. Don't forget you can keep up with the latest analysis, insights and expertise on Asia-Pacific public policy at policyforum.net. We'll see you there. Cheerio. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.